To protect the future of liberal democracy in Europe, one must first understand its challengers. Among these challengers, we can count populists, autocrats, and the increasingly often mentioned illiberals. But who are they, and what is illiberalism? How does it relate to populism? Can illiberals be democrats at all? What are the policy implications of having illiberal politicians, especially of the radical right in power in the EU? In the next hour, we will explore these questions with Professor Kas Muda as we cover various issues at the intersection of academic and policy research on populism, illiberalism, democracy, and the radical right. Welcome to the latest episode of the Review of Democracy podcast of the CEU Democracy Institute, this time brought to you uh, in cooperation with Authlib. Authlib, which is short for Neo-Authoritarianisms in Europe and the Liberal Democratic Response, is an EU-funded Horizon project led by CEU and is implemented in cooperation with the Charles University, Sciences Po, Scuola Normale Superiore, SWPS University, the German Marshall Fund of the United States, the University of Oxford, and the University of Vienna. My name is Zsuzsanna Weg, and I am a visiting fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. I have the pleasure to welcome and introduce today's guest, Kass Mude. Kass is a professor of international affairs and a distinguished research professor at the School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Georgia. His academic research agenda is centered on the question how liberal democracies can defend themselves against political challenges without undermining their core values. He has published widely on uncivil society, democratization, Euroscepticism, extremism and democracy, political parties especially of the far right and populism. Kas, thank you for accepting our invitation. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I would like to start uh, with a question relating to one of your main research topics, uh, populism, but uh, also tweak it a little bit. Um, after nearly two decades of what we can maybe refer to the populist zeitgeist, at least when it comes to scholarly literature, it seems that uh, scholars have recently increasingly turned their attention towards studying illiberalism or illiberal democracy. What do you make of this new scholarly trend? Does this capture something that you think is qualitatively new and different? Uh, do you consider this concept of illiberalism analytically useful? Uh, and what do you make of this new line of research in terms of conceptual coherence? Okay, that's quite a lot of questions. I think um, that to a certain extent it is a logical evolution from the fact that populism has become more relevant. And so at the beginning of the study of populism in Europe, at least, and to a certain extent, uh, North America, Latin America being a little bit different, as well as the study of the radical right, which closely overlaps, um, populist parties, radical right parties were rarely in power or close to power even. And so 
we we mostly looked at what they did and and why they were successful and why it would be successful um now we see that populism again broadly defined here has been in power in many countries uh, actually quite longer in certain cases and and as a consequence we're now increasingly looking at what are their effects and i think that is in in part uh, explains this move towards illiberalism and particularly illiberal illiberal democracy things like that we're, we're looking at the consequences of it the second thing although i think it's much more implicit is that um, I think populism has become much less important to many of um, the so-called populist actors for the simple reason of that are related to what I said before. Many of them have come to power or have become embraced by so-called mainstream parties. And as a consequence, populism makes much less sense. Like populism is great when everyone hates you. Um, but if uh, half of half of the parties and much of the establishment by much treats you as any other party, then, then populism is no longer particularly useful. And so I think that those things play a role. I also, to me, a lot of the populism literature in Europe traditionally comes out of party scholarship. Um, a lot of the literature on populism from a more theoretical point of view, as well as I would it comes out of democracy studies. And in, in Latin America, a lot of the populism literature was closely related to the democratization literature. And I think the populism literature has moved much more towards that, to questions of democracy rather than electoral behavior, party systems. And, and I think in my own work, like there's a big difference between my initial work on radical right parties, which was just party literature, uh, barely ever touched upon questions of liberal democracy. And my work on populism, which from the start was very much about the relationship to democracy. And so the illiberalism literature is much more in line with that second part, with the literature I would say more of democratization than necessarily democracy. It is a bit more of an empirical literature than a theoretical literature. Um, and I have questions about the terminology. Um, I see the term liberalism as an attempt to capture a broad range of phenomena that do, are not perfectly captured by other parts. So populism has a significant part of it, but not everything. Classic authoritarianism is also has a lot of it, but is also too narrow. But as a consequence of that, in the strict conceptual terminological way, illiberalism is too broad. And I think what illiberalism tries to do, but I know I might say that, is to give a kind of an ideological term, or try to capture liberal democracy as a system in an ideo ideology. So what we're actually looking at is forces that are against liberal democracy. But you can't 
say illiberal democratic because that's an awkward term but I, to me that is the essence of the term and how most people use it as far as i see and that is conceptually not exactly the same as a liberalism could you maybe elaborate a little bit more uh, on the relationship between illiberalism and democracy uh, can illiberals under any circumstances be democrats um, and if we can speak about the spread of illiberalism not in scholarly terms not in literature but effectively in um, empirical practice um, what does this mean to democracy and liberal democracy uh, in the world today So I think um, the term liberalism, again, comes out of a concern for liberal democracy specifically, and the idea of liberal democracy implicitly or explicitly separates liberalism and democracy, wherein democracy is seen as popular sovereignty and majority rule, and in itself uh, is, is a system, as well as to a certain extent a belief, but um, it's a very narrow, limited definition of democracy and then a liberal democracy combines popular sovereignty and majority rule with a whole set of of principles as well as institutions like free media uh, independent judiciary but also pluralism rule of law minority laws <coughs> sorry minority rights and i think that th so there are scholars who believe that democracy binaries cannot exist without being a liberal democracy but what you see also in the literature a lot of people who speak specifically over liberal democracy and, and argue that there's an inherent tension between the two and that there are two fundamentally different um, traditions ideological ideas of liberalism and of democracy whereas liberalism is concerned with individuals autonomous individuals and their rights Um, whereas democracy is is concerned with majority rule in a sense, and um, as said, I think illiberalism tries to capture everyone who is against liberal democracy. But the point is, some people are against liberal democracy because they are anti-liberal, but pro-democratic. Some people are against liberal democracy because they're anti-democratic, but they're liberal. And then some people are against both liberalism and democracy. And so you capture all three, which are very different beasts. But the anti-democrats, we, we have already covered in a sense. They're generally covered as authoritarians, whatever the problematic terminology is of that. And so when you see liberalism and democracy as separated and you use a very minimal definition of democracy, then illiberals can be democratic. Um, <clears throat> because illiberals, people who, who don't accept minority rights or separation of powers, can nevertheless believe in popular sovereignty and majority rule. Now, how does that work in practice? So again, if I think about Jan Werner Müller, who argues that 
democracy cannot really function uh, if it's not a liberal democracy. I think to a certain extent that is true. I think to have truly popular sovereignty and majority rule in any meaningful way, you need what Robert Dahl called free and fair elections. And to have free and fair elections, you need an incredibly comprehensive system, um, which is far bigger than we generally accept. But at the same time, I think there is use to separate people who are fundamentally against democracy and people who at least pretend to be for democracy, but have problems with liberal democracy. Um, while both might, certain, both will certainly attack liberal democracy and probably in the end, both will subvert democracy per se. They will do so in very different ways. And um, I always give that example of I'm comparing Hitler to, to Orban. I, I mean, Hitler destroyed democracy without any apologies, right? because fundamentally his system was based on the idea of having a superior leader who was smarter, better, morally superior to the will of the people. Whereas what Orban has to do, as the Republicans do in the US, as a side note, is pretty much destroy or weaken or undermine democracy in the name of saving democracy. And while at the end, the result might be relatively similar, not equating Orban and Hitler, but like in the end, both might destroy democracy. The process of how they do it and the justifications for it, and so to a certain extent, the politics of it, will be fundamentally different. And that's why I do like the, to have a focus, uh, to have a separation between people who are purely against democracy and people who pretend to be for democracy, uh, but are illiberal. Thank you, Cass. Speaking of democracy, um, scholars of democracy, uh, of course, often seek to identify various trends, global trends. And there seems to be nowadays an agreement uh, also when we look at various democracy measurement tools that what we see is a global trend of autocratization. Um, and in fact, this autocratization, although you do introduce a differentiation here, but they often it often tends to be driven by actors who we otherwise would categorize as populist, as illiberal. Um, so is the case if we look at the democratization in Europe, uh, even within the European Union. Um, however, overall, the balance uh, seems to be quite mixed when it comes to the state of democracy. And here I would like to bring in um, the recent experience of two elections, the one in Slovakia in September, which uh, brought the rise uh, of a 
who is often categorized as a populist leader, back to power, Robert Fico, uh, and the one in Poland in October, um, where the results seem to suggest that a pro-democratic force will be able to form government. Um, what I would like to ask you about uh, after this contextualization is um, to what extent do you think that such singular events that I have just mentioned um, can have um, a trend making impact? How do they um, fit into the bigger picture, how much importance shall we attribute to one or the other when we are thinking about the state of democracy in Europe and the uh, importance of uh, populist, illiberal leaders on uh, democratic processes uh, on the continent? Yes, I see three questions here. Um, <laughs> let me uh, quickly answer all three. So the first is about the decline of democracy, um, liberal democracy or democracy as a whole, because um, it's also a trend of uh, of author autocratization. And so the argument is that liberal democracies are becoming more illiberal or less liberal. Um, some become less democratic, but also that autocratic regimes are becoming more autocratic, like China, for example, or Russia, for, for that matter. Um, so trends are, to a certain extent, just a collection. It's just aggregate data, right? Um, we, we then think that they have the same causes. And I'm a bit skeptical of that. Let me also say that I'm very skeptical about the trend. Um, and particularly, I'm very, very skeptical about data sets that, um, that work over very long periods of time. Um, I remember studying democratization Central Eastern Europe and all the time hearing that, that Czechoslovakia before the Second World War was, uh, was a liberal democracy. And it's like, by no standards of the late 20th century was Czechoslovakia in the, in the uh, interbellum period, a liberal democracy. And so I think there are two things going on. I mean, on the one hand, I, I honestly think that um, we, our, our requirements or expectations of what is a liberal democracy have become more encompassing. And at the same time, we don't actually apply the same expectations across time. And so what we find very disturbing at the moment, say for example, um, gender inequality or the treatment of LGBTQI, like we don't even mention, like, I mean, we're talking still in data sets about democracies that excluded half of the population. Like in what world can you call a country in which women cannot vote a democracy? And yet we do, a liberal democracy, no less. So <clears throat> I think there's that. The other thing is we, we uh, related to that. 
I think we have a, a very rosy, nostalgic picture of how the state of liberal democracy was in the 1990s in particular. And this is particularly strong among so-called centrists. And you see that in Western Europe, but you also particularly see that in Central and Eastern Europe. And I think Sean Hanley, for example, and others have like done really good research by arguing like a lot of this decline, <clears throat> this uh, alleged decline in liberal democracy, as well as in support for liberal democracy is usually exaggerated because these countries were not liberal democratic by many standards. Um, before. So in that sense, yes, I'm not arguing that the state of liberal democracy isn't problematic at the time. I don't think we had a golden age. And I think that it's differently. One of the big differences that yes, we now have people who openly say that they are illiberal. And who are openly advocating a different type of democracy. But let's be clear, liberal democracy was being subverted by mainstream parties in many ways during most of the time, if you think about Italy. But actually, if you think about Austria, where uh, courts have subverted liberal democracy in ways that come very close to uh, Poland, for example, and courts was not the first. Austria has a long problem with that. So, um, so I think that always makes it for me hard to read these data. Now, with regard to Slovakia and, and Poland, <coughs> these are interesting elections, which are always confusing for media who need to have a trend. And so they were already writing all their articles about populism is dead after the Polish elections. And then Fico came and then they thought, ah, what are we going to do? Well, I mean, Poland is bigger than Slovakia. So Poland wins the story at the moment. But the next time some populist wins, then populism is back again, etc, etc. The problem with that approach is that every individual election is always, absolutely always more driven by national slash local factors than by global ones. People don't vote for or against PIS because Trump won or lost. It doesn't work like that. And so I see things in the context, right? Uh, it, it, in Central and Eastern Europe, it's always remarkable when it when a government stays in power. Um, it has happened a bit more now, but on average, governmental parties lose. PIS had been in government twice. You lose. If you don't have full control of the state like Hungary, you lose particularly if you're faced with a half-decent opposition, which again is a fundamental difference with Hungary. And so I don't look at PIS being down. I look at PIS still being a phenomenally strong party, despite having like, openly subverted liberal democracy, and diminished the rights of women, LGBTQI, and by and large mismanaged various elements of the economy and other things. That is what I see. And the next election, they are poised to be back because the, gov the current government or the incoming government will have a hard time um, <clears throat> governing in general. Um, Slovakia, the same thing. Like Slovak politics is incredibly volatile. Um, the last government was completely divided, <clears throat> couldn't get almost anything done. And therefore, the opposition comes back 
that that would be Fizzo is logical, given the infrastructure of his party, as well as his personal talent. Um, is he particularly successful? No. He actually doesn't have that much support. It's a very fragmented party system in which he is the strongest. And so this is not a massive vote for Fizzo by any way, shape or form. Um, and so he comes back, not so much, this is not about Fizzo. Right? It's not even about being pro-Russian or whatever. You always have to keep in mind there's only less than a quarter that voted for him and for the policies. Most of them vote against the government. So I don't, I, I don't see any other trend than that generally people vote the government out. Now, that doesn't mean that a trend cannot be created because that is what pol that politicians do. That's what journalists do. That is what opinion makers do. And so after every big election, newspapers are full of articles of this is the end of this or the beginning of that. And other people read that and politicians read that and think, oh, populism is over, so let's move away from that. Um, and so trends can be made. Um, they generally are not made, though, <laughs> to put it bluntly, by Central East European countries. They're made by Germany, the US, the UK, France. Like th those are the countries that if, if they all move around the same time in a certain direction, then that is allegedly something global. Um, and so what is very important is just how these kind of trends are created. They're hardly ever purely empirical. They're based on cherry picking. Some elections show the success or the failure of populists, but others don't, and we ignore those. Somewhat sticking with the topic of trends, how they are made and whether or not we see them, I would now like to move on to uh, the issue of the far-right, radical-right parties uh, in Europe. Uh, as the European parliamentary elections of next June are approaching, um, we again start to hear more about, there are more speculations about how the European Parliament will look, um, how the far-right parties will perform and um, what kind of political groupings they may be able to create. Um, now, over the years, we have heard a lot about um, the rise of the far-right in Europe. But if we look a little bit closer, and of course there is uh, evidence pointing in that direction, um, we see radical right parties breaking through in countries where they have been completely marginal before, like Spain or Portugal. We also see um, that Alternative for Germany is becoming more prominent for the moment in state elections. And um, there seems to be rising support behind the party. At the same time, um, there are results which maybe point to a different direction. Again, referring back to the Slovak and the Polish elections. Um, in both cases, the radical right overall did perform 
not bad, obviously, but worse than uh, it was projected. In the case of Poland, uh, Confederacja certainly did not become the kingmaker that it was said to be. Uh, similarly, in the case of Slovakia, uh, the Republic performed worse. Um, SNS also uh, barely made it into um, the parliament. So overall, the results were worse than expected, still significant. Um, so in this context, what can we expect, uh, in your opinion, from the European radical right? And what should we um, prepare for when it comes to the new European Parliament? The European elections are like, it's like Christmas and your birthday on one day for election nerds, because there's so much going on. And But it's also so complex and it's always, the complexity is reduced in, in problematic ways. I mean, first of all, they're not one election, like the 27 independent election. As I said, like while you can make trends, every in the individual election is that an individual election. People in France are not going to vote more for the radical right because AFD does better in Germany. It's just how it works. Now, I would think that in terms of popular support, the radical right is not going to do much better uh, for the simple reason that they did really, really well the last time. However, in terms of seats, they're going to gain. And the simple reason is Germany. And so we always talk again about 27 elections, but in terms of seats, they're not 27. The elections in Germany are like 10 times as important as the elections somewhere else. Germany having like almost 100 seats, if a party goes from around 10% to around 20%, that's 10 more seats. That is enormous. Right? That's as many as various countries have. And so AFD alone is going to A, compensate for some other parties losing seats and add. Now there are some other parties that are going to do well as well, but the effect is not so big. Like Flams Belang is doing great, but Belgium is a very small country. Um, today, what is different from, um, I would say even 10 years ago, but particularly 20 years ago, is that the radical right does well in big countries. Italy, Germany now, France, they always did, but also Spain, Portugal. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, Poland. And so, um, as such, the radical right is going to get a lot of seats. But then you get to the second part about European elections, and that is that ideology matters much less than, than group alliances. In terms of group alliances, <clears throat> as a consequence of the divisions, the radical right has been much weaker in Europe than it numerically and popularly is. Um, for example, in, in the last parliament, around one in four seats went to the radical right, depends a bit on how you define that. <clears throat> and you could even say one in three to Eurosceptic parties. And yet, they have had almost no effect 
on what the European Parliament did, and the key reason is that they have been divided. There are two radical right groups, even though many people don't consider one of them as radical right, which is a discussion in itself. One is IND, which is the classic group of, of Rassemblement National, of the Le Pen group. And then we have the ECR, which we still misperceive as a conservative group, which is run by PIS, but which really has only one or two non-radical right parties left, and the only significant one as far as I can think of now is ODS in the Czech Republic, which for some reason just sticks to it, which is a very weird situation. But almost everything else is either a transformed radical right party, party used to be conservative, now radical right, like PIS, or hardcore radical right always was like Sweden Democrats, for example. Um, and then we have some radical right who are still in other groups, most notably Jansha, who is still in the EPP, and a significant number who are in no group whatsoever, the non-inscripts, which of course of those, Orban is the most important. Now, if you would have asked me this two years ago, I would have said, we're going to get an ECR plus. Um, there was a significant meeting in Warsaw that tried to accomplish that. Of course, the initiative always came from Orban for two reasons. PIS is a parochial party, um, which is not really busy with anything beyond its own borders. And second of all, Orban is a European player who knows European Union better than virtually any other leader. But Putin saved us in that respect because as soon as he invaded Ukraine again, we got this massive split between Orban and PIS, which makes it impossible for PIS to be openly associated with Orban. And so I cannot see ECR going to work together with, with Fides in European Parliament. That would hurt PIS back home far too much. It, it, it won't get anything back from that. At the same time, <clears throat> Orban is so toxic that actually for most of the established radical right parties, the alliance doesn't bring that much. Like clearly Fratelli is not going to do that um, because Meloni uh, is within the ECR camp and has chosen that. Um, but there's not much that much to gain for Salvini either and for others. <clears throat> so we're going into the election with a split radical right in terms of groups. But at the same time, we also see a courting of the ECR and particularly certain members of the ECR by the EPP, the center-right group. <clears throat> now that is, I think, the most interesting question, really. Um, it seems that the EPP and the rumors are that the EPP want to gain Meloni, um, which makes sense. Italy is a big country. They've lost their representative. Forza Italia is as dead as its leader. And so they need a new one. <clears throat> Mainstream media, right-wing media, right-wing parties are working overtime to mainstream Meloni and call her a conservative and arguing that her government is not doing anything <laughs> bad and radical. Um, and the EPP 
focuses the elections on immigration and particularly the Tunisia deal, which Maloney was one of the people to make. And so all of that is, is centered around like this kind of courting. I think Maloney is not going to join the EPP, but EPP, ECR is going to be the nexus. I mean, this is the strategy of the EPP is to replace SND and to a lesser extent renew the social Democrats and the liberals for the ECR so that they can get more of their policies done and particularly about immigration, but also uh, opposing climate change deals and things like that. Um, numerically, I don't think they have a majority, not even with the support of IND and, and others, if they would give it. Um, but in pure power politics, right, it gives them blackmail potential to say to SND and renew, don't do this, don't do that. And so we are actually really going to go into a new parliament, I think. I mean, the old alliance of the free groups dominating everything, that's over, even if they still hold the majority, it's over because the EPP now openly flaunts an alternative. Typically when uh, the mainstream right cooperates with the radical right, it leads to certain position and policy shifts uh, rightward in the given context. So should this um, dynamic come to fruition that you mention, what do you think that would really mean for the European Union? So obviously that process has been ongoing. Like, um, a majority of EPP parties has worked with the radical right at the national level, be it at the national or subnational level. Several of the parties have moved so far to the right that the distinction with um, the radical right was at times incredibly difficult. Of course, EPP included radical right parties like uh, Jan Schaas party and before Orban's party, but you have a party like OVP, which right, was almost indistinguishable from FPÖ and was very close to Orban. The interesting thing, as my very smart former PhD student, Sarah Delange, showed in her PhD, was that this process of adoption actually predates coalitions with the radical right. And it makes sense because what the radical, what the mainstream right needs to do to be able to govern with the radical right is to to get the the stigma away, <laughs> and you do that in part by becoming closer to them so that they look less radical, and, and by all the time talking about them as being reliable and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so by the time that they actually are in government the migration policy, for example, actually reflects that of the mainstream party more than of the radical right party. However, the mainstream party's position on immigration has shifted towards the radical right in the years before that. Now, this has been going on pretty much since the beginning of the century. And it goes a bit back and forth. The CSU is a very good example. Um, it radicalizes mostly whenever AFD goes up. Um, and then when it has some other considerations or it thinks that that is not the way to go, it, it moves back. And so Seizu 
like a few years ago, decided to go back to the center. But then AFD became very strong and now they went to the right. <clears throat> now, of course, Sezu is important and Sezu is because Manfred Weber is the leader of the EPP, who is going to be their Spitzenkandidat and who has chosen to make this election about, <clears throat> the, about immigration. So what happens? Generally, a few positions radicalized immigration and European integration. But the European integration thing is more difficult. Um, it becomes Eurosceptic in discourse, but policy-wise, there isn't that much. Right? And so I think with regard to immigration, EPP, with the exception of some Northern members, and ECR are pretty much at the same point. And not just them, there are many parties in S&D and virtually every Central East European party that supports these type of, of very restricted um, immigration policies. But with regard to where the EU should go, the difference between EPP and ECR is still significant. And there is less space there, I think. There are some very principled Europeanists within the EPP um, who will not tolerate certain things. And so they need to find other topics, right? And so on Ukraine, they can actually be together. So I, that that's good. Um, climate change and particularly fighting like a green agenda is something where the EPP has moved significantly to the right and will find its way. Anti-wokeness, which is so deliciously vague that you can keep it going on everything. Um, you see it in CDU, where there are now more and more campaigns against wokeness. Um, it's very popular within the mainstream right uh, across the world, uh, pretty much. And so there are some other policy things that work. They're actually discursive topics that work very well that mostly mean that you stop vague policies. Um, and I think they will jump on that. But the biggest problem for the EPP-ECR collaboration, I think, is the EU and the EU structure and the restructure. Now, I think in general, there's a push, which also goes back decades, but there's a more strong push now towards a, a Europe of various speeds, however you want to call it. Um, I think this is almost inevitable if the EU decides for not political, for not democratic or economic reasons, but for military reasons to include the Western Balkans and even more problematic Ukraine. Um, that can only be done if we we make different levels of of EU integration, or we're going to pull the level of collaboration much lower, which. ECR would love, right? Uh, I think the EPP would not want to go there. They would rather have the different speeds, which actually, if I remember correctly, was already discussed in the 1990s and came out of the CSU. So in that sense, it did, this whole plan, while sounding novel, is something that already had an idea. And that will allow the EPP and ECR to coexist, um, except that, of course, Italy will be in that integrated 
face, that core. And that might be problematic for Meloni, but she also needs the money. So. Moving beyond Europe, um, but sticking to the topic of radical right cooperation, I wanted to ask you about these various alliance building attempts that we see uh, coming about, linking both sides of the Atlantic. We see growing affinity among various American and European, very often actually Hungarian, uh, radical right actors, not just party level, but also various organizations. Um, what do you make of this uh, phenomenon and um, what does it mean for um, the internationalization of the far right? Yeah, I think they're conflated to a certain extent and at the same time there are two trends that are very different both in origins and in agenda but that are starting to overlap. So one of the things that we still pay far too little attention to, particularly in Europe, less the case in the US, is actually the religious right. And the religious right has always, always been far better integrated uh, as a global actor than the radical right. And they have been particularly well connected to Central and Eastern Europe, <clears throat> where US religious organizations um, went into uh, the promised land, like after communism, right? That that was a whole continent to to conquer, <clears throat> and it. Some of these very radical, intolerant organizations got it's got some kind of deal with local organizations, particularly in Russia. But um, there are also close relationships in Romania and other parts. Now the religious right is under the radar because they don't speak so much about immigration generally and only recently have become have gotten some attention in Europe because of Bannon and particularly Meloni. Meloni spoke at a couple of these rallies, which have been going on for decades and decades and have actual policy consequences, like anti-LGBTQ laws and in Central East Europe, but particularly in Africa and, and everything. The thing is that the religious right has radicalized over the last two decades and has become much closer with the radical right, particularly here in the US, but also in Latin America. <clears throat> and these broader alliances, which traditionally were were kind of dominated by the religious right, um, you, you, you see now getting more and more dominated by the radical right. And um, we, again, we see that here in the US, but you see it in Latin America, very strong, Brazil being the example. And you see Vox trying to create an alliance with that. Vox very active in Latin America, where they bring together mainstream right, religious right, and radical right. But the initiative goes mostly from the radical right, which is new. Um, these alliances... As said, they're, they're a bit more difficult with the exception of specific policies, mostly related to abortion and LGBTQ. They don't do that much and they are they, they go way, way beyond politicians that are they're, they're religious figures, they're thinkers, there's everything there. They don't lead to party alliances. 
And that's probably why we kind of ignore them a little bit too much. But I think there's a lot there and it's and it's interesting because if the religious right and more importantly, if fundament if religious institutions start to embrace the radical right, think about the Catholic Church, for example, which has always held its distance from the radical right in Italy, um, <clears throat> at least formally, and it's very strongly courted. Uh, by Meloni, but even by Salvini, um, things change. Similarly, traditionally, the, the, the Catholic Church prefers the Partido Popular um, in in uh, Spain. Of course, Vox tries to get that connection too. And so there's a lot moving there. At the same time, we have Hungary. And Hungary is is unique in this respect. Because, of course, Hungary is... <laughs> I mean, until recently was only one of two countries where the far right in Europe was actually in power, plundered the coffers of the state to advance its agenda. But again, the difference with Poland, that Poland is parochial and so tries to do the same thing, but is only interested in Polish things. Orban has always been a global actor. <clears throat> now, what is he doing? He's buying support. I, I the amounts of money that are being spent by the Hungarian state on often pretty second-rate Anglo-academics, thinkers, think tankers, journalists, is amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, they are still mostly second-tier at best. Um, but the idea, I think, is, is very strategic, is very simple. Of course, Orban likes to present themselves as an intellectual, um, but that's not what this is about. <clears throat> he sees the UK and the US as countermeasures to the EU. And he's trying to buy protection, which he has lost by being kicked out of the EPP in the EU. And so he's getting increasingly isolated. Russia doesn't have any moral standards. So you can use Russia and, and, and China in some economic leverage, but in, in more political leverage right, and, and moral leverage, if he could have the support of the right-wing leaders in Britain and the US, then he can stand up to the EU. That's the whole idea behind it. Now, he has always had a problem with getting access to Trump. <laughs> And um, I think that now he is trying to, to get closer. And he's not so much getting necessarily closer to Trump, but he's definitely getting much closer to the Conservative Party for whatever that means, the Republican Party, the centers, um, things like that. And they're very close to the Conservative Party in Britain, but perhaps not so much the Sunak faction. Um, this extends not much beyond Fidesz and Orban, though. Um, while some other people are being invited, um, I don't. I don't really think this is a, a, a European or a global plan. This is a Hungarian plan, and um, we will have to see how much it pays off. Right? I mean, I think it took Orban two and a half years to get his meeting with Trump in the first term. I would imagine that Orban will be among the first leaders to be seen in the second term of Trump, should he come back. And then 
those tens of millions of dollars, euros, have paid off because that is what the agenda is. Um, if I can add, I do think it, it goes beyond that, though. I mean, I think it is deeply concerning that a growing group of people who operate in the mainstream, both academia, but think tanks, journalists, etc., are shilling for um, a far-right authoritarian leader. And um, I mean, we treat organizations like the MCC, or even worse, the, the Danube Institute, as if it is a legitimate think tank that has independence. And um, I think we ha should have a way more fundamental conversation about it, because one of the things that we see is that there are people speaking at these meetings who I don't think are aware of what the institutes are, or more importantly, what they are meant to do. Thank you very much, Cus. Uh, there would be still so much to talk about, so much to cover, although we have touched on already so many things, illiberalism, populism, their relation to democracy, trends of autocratization, um, trends behind uh, the far right in Europe, their potential cooperation in the future and uh, their cooperation uh, in the transatlantic space. Uh, but we unfortunately have to close here. I would like to thank you very much once again for taking the time to join us today. And I would like to thank our listeners for staying with us. If you are interested in fresh academic research and policy analysis on matters of illiberalism, populism, authoritarianism, and their implications to liberal democracy in Europe, follow Outlib, that is A-U-T-H-L-I-B, on social media and visit our website at outlib.eu, that is A-U-T-H-L-I-B dot E. You. you can also find these links in the show notes.